Hey, this is Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Up on theringer.com this week, we've posted our streaming recommendations for the month of September, updated our 50 best superhero movies of all time list, and make sure to check out our Stephen King coverage by Ben Lindbergh on the site and on the Big Picture Podcast. On the sports side, our NFL experts are giving their predictions for the season, the storylines they're most excited about, and finalizing their rankings of the top 150 fantasy players of 2019. You can check it out on theringer.com. Hey, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmer. You're listening to Black on the Air. Thank you for joining me. Very cool pot today. Uh, Mr. Brian Grazer, one of the uh, God, one of the most successful film producers of almost the last 40 years. Jesus Christ, he's been doing it for so long. Today we had a great conversation recently about his new book called Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection. Real interesting guy, Brian. He's one of those um, iconoclasts in the business and you don't get a good sense of him, I think, even from working with him. You need to sit down and, and really talk to him to find out what he's about. But it's, he brings up some interesting subjects, especially about people with things like uh, dyslexia and things like that and how they overcompensate in certain areas. But he's used his his shortcomings to kind of be his superpowers in, in the business, it's kind of, of what his book is about, how to make human connections through um, just face-to-face contacts. Real, real interesting. But um, – I worked with him. One of my first big breaks was uh, co-creating the PJs with Eddie Murphy and Steve Tompkins, and that was with Imagine, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. So there you go. So we get to catch up, have a nice conversation. I think you guys will enjoy that. Um, Man, there's a lot going on right now. The big news is the Hurricane um, Dorian, I believe. Hurricane names are so ridiculous, so interesting. This one is really bad because it kind of stalled over the Bahamas. It's really taking a beating right now and doesn't look like it's going to affect the mainland as much as it affected that island. It's very sad, um, really pulling for all the people there and all that stuff. And, you know, right before this happened, we had another one of these mass shootings. Man, it's been quite a week. This one was a weird one. In fact, because I was um, out of town, I was in New York for a few days. It was hard for me to find out what was going on, you know. It was hard to figure out online and watching the news, but apparently I guess some somebody was pulled over and shot the cop, I think, and then was on this chase and was randomly shooting people. It's just terrible. And uh once again, we have these same conversations that we always have, you know, and that type of stuff. And I talked about this recently. In fact, I got I got I became a darling of the of the right, when I say darling, I mean one of their targets, you know, pardon the metaphor, to go after. Because when I was on um, uh, Crooked Media's uh, show, on Love It or Leave It, I did. we had this little thing where they do a rant. And it's supposed to be like this comic rant about something. And I chose, of course, the harder subject, guns. And I talked a little bit about this on my pod. And I was talking about we need to change the language on how we talk about some of these weapons. Because... Uh, some of these I don't feel are really guns, you know, when its purpose is to kill as many people in the least amount of time. That sounds like a weapon of mass destruction. And that was my rant. And I did this little bit where, you know, I, I had uh, someone come to your door to take away your weapon of mass destruction, you know, as a bit. You know, and I got all this pushback. You're not coming for my gun. Try to get my gun. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, let me clear some shit up. Okay, I'm doing a bit, first of all. 
I'm not coming for anybody's gun, nor do I suggest the government actually come for your guns. I'm not one of these people that believes the government should be taken away, should be knocking on people's door, trying to take things away from them. I do not suggest that. You know, part of that was a bit. That's not the point of what I was talking about. The point of what I was talking about, which I still really believe in, is how we talk about things. Some things I feel like we don't use good enough language to discuss it. I'm not an anti-gun person, personally. I grew up, my father was uh, in law enforcement. He had a rifle in the house. I knew where the rifle was, but, you know, I grew up in an age where most families had guns, you know. I, I, I remember opening the drawer and seeing the bullets, and playing with the bullets. I know that sounds weird. You would not suggest that. But it wasn't, there was no mythology around it. It wasn't like a big, uh, oh, my God, it's a gun. It was like, oh, there's Dad's gun. So I think because there was no big mythology around it, you know, I didn't, feel the sense of I had to explore it or whatever. Not suggesting kids should have easy access to bullets. Don't get me wrong on this one. But my point is I don't have a an anti-gun point of view in what I'm saying. You know, if women want to protect themselves, have a gun in their purse, I get it. Someone wants to protect their home, shotgun, I get it. You know, uh, there are business people that have a gun under the counter, they get broken in all the time. I get it. You know, self-defense, that type of thing. You know, there are weapons that are used in military situations, which, you know, are for military purposes. My whole problem is the military-like weapons in the hands of civilians, I don't understand. I don't know why we allow this type of thing, and I don't get it. You know, killing the most amount of people in the least amount of time, to me, sounds not like a gun of self-defense. It sounds like an offensive gun that is more like a weapon of mass destruction, you know? And I think we can be smart enough to talk about those certain types of weapons and do they need to be in the hands of civilians? I don't think they need to be. Now, whether people, you know, whether we come to a point where people are able to get rid of them or we don't sell them anymore or whatever, but I think as a starting point, can we at least be honest enough to make a distinction between what these weapons are intended for? Because if they're built to, to do that type of thing, the intent of the gun is to kill as many as possible. You know, you're not shooting until, uh, you know, what is a herd of deer or whatever to shoot as many deer as possible. I don't think they're for hunting purposes unless you're hunting humans, and then they are for that. So anyhow, my whole point is I want to get clarity on what my intent is here. You know, I'm not one of these people. My intent is not for government to do something in terms of taking something away. My intent is for us as a society, as intelligent thinking people, to have a better conversation about this and be adult about it. And I think it affects, it. it's about a lot of things that are going on here. One, one of the other things is um, I get exhausted about how many times we talk about how much Trump is lying, you know, <laughs> which we know he lies all the time. I think it's the Washington Post actually counts the lies or something like that, which I'd like to see, you know, who has that job, actually, how they're doing that, because he's doing it all the time, you know. And now I see some Democrats are a little, um, don't know what to do about Joe Biden because he seems to be, as they call a quote-unquote gaff machine. I love that they say gaff machine. Like they can't quite say he's lying you know, because they want to protect him. So they say gaff machine. You know, he has these gaffes. He can't stop gaffing. Stop it. You know, Biden is a politician. Of course, that motherfucker lies. He lies just like any other politician. You know, 
but let's start using better language about this. Uh, let me let me give you this, guys. And I've said this before. Look, all politicians lie. It's part of their job. You know, they don't quite present the truth for you in a in a way that it is actually the truth. They're preventing a version of something out there to sell you something so you will vote for them or whatever. You know, so that's what I like to call what comes out of their, their mouth bullshit because that's what it is. The question is not do they lie, but the real question is are you willing to accept their bullshit? That's the question, right? Because if you look at the Trump supporters, and I've said this before, they know he lies. They know he makes shit up. But they are willing to accept his bullshit because they want what he is giving them. It is a transactional relationship. So the Washington Post can exhaust itself as much as they want trying to point out that Trump is lying, but is not going to have an effect on the people who support him because they accept his bullshit. They're buying his bullshit because they are getting what they want. Okay, so I think the smart thing to do is to examine what the bullshit is trying to accomplish. What are you trying to get with this lie or this bullshit? Now, in Trump's example, I believe 90 percent of his bullshit is self self aggrandizing. You know, he's in the Trump business. Most of his bullshit comes from boasting. Right. He's trying to make himself look better. He's always the hero of his stories. Right. You know, who's the hero of their stories all the time? It's Trump. Right. You know, 10% is in that dangerous, dangerous area of bullshitting. And by the way, bullshit isn't always lying, by the way. You can actually use portions of the truth, especially like certain types of stats where you're giving limited information to get across, you know, bullshit that you want people to buy. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of lying, but it really is definitely bullshit. That is, you know... When Trump is is in that area, now he's trying to accomplish something either for his base or for his ideology or whatever by his particular lie that is the bullshit. Now, you can decide for yourself whether what the bullshit is accomplishing is something you can get behind. Is that bullshit at the service of that person? Is the bullshit in the service of, of legislation? Is that bullshit in the service of a dangerous idea? You know, what is that bullshit in the service of? But trying to stop them from bullshitting is never going to happen. Look, Joe Biden, let's go back to Biden. People are so verklempt. I love using that word, by the way, verklempt. People are so verklempt over the fact, oh, no, what are we going to do? Is Biden lying? What are we going to do about this? This motherfucker had to drop out of the 1988 race because of plagiarizing someone. He was plagiarizing something, you know. And back then, so he was bullshitting back then in service of himself. Which at that time, you know, people weren't so excited about. But now he, what Biden was uh, lying about, and I, I don't even know so much if he's lying so much as he's getting it wrong in his favor to express this story about, um, I think it was uh, a service a serviceman or something who didn't want to accept an award. It was something like this, and he was pointing out the the uh, I think the deep commitment of some of the service people. And I'm getting some of this wrong, and I'm generalizing, but the point is. And this is the point that actually Biden makes. Even Biden said, who gives a fuck? He didn't use that language. He said, who gives a fuck that I'm lying? I'm lying for a good reason. He's telling us my bullshit is not in service of me, you guys. The bullshit that I'm giving you is in service of something we should get behind. And you know what? He's right. I ain't mad at him. Biden is not wrong about that. And this is how people need to think about this. Stop wondering if people are lying or not. Yes. Let me tell you, this is what politicians do. This is their job is to lie. Okay, you should be asking yourself, 
can I get behind this bullshit or is there a different type of bullshit that I want to get behind? Because you're going to get behind some bullshit. Don't fool yourself. Whoever you get behind, you're, you're behind some bullshit and you're going to be downwind of that bullshit. It's just up to you if you want to smell it or not. You will be downwind of whoever's bullshit is out there. It's up to you what you want to get behind. And this is not saying you should get behind Joe Biden or all that. I'm just pointing out that it's bullshit that he's doing, you know, and all the candidates do this. It's up to you to decide what you want to get behind. But I think we can talk about this better. And I think it'll help people who are confused over, well, you know, uh, I'm so destroyed. It seems like the person lied. Well, that's kind of their job. So let's get over that. But how we talk about things, I think, is very important. And it leads me to this last thing, which I think is, I think it's time to start talking about an issue that is very important to people out there in just a different way. There's some town halls tonight on CNN. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 4th, and they're all talking about climate change. I haven't seen it yet because it hasn't aired, so you guys have a better take on what people are saying and everything. And when it comes to climate change, I'm not one of these people that are what I call a climate change fatalist, and that is somebody who says that unless we do something, the earth will be destroyed. And I'm not a climate change denier who says we have nothing to do with what's going on in the climate changing, you know. I am more a, what you might call a climate realist, you know, and I'm just using words to help me here, where I think we should be good stewards of this earth that we're living in just as a default position. We should try to keep it clean, you know. But I think we should change the way that we're talking about this because I think the people on both sides of this are never going to come together for these ideological reasons. And part of it is what these words kind of force us into and the word climate change, I don't, I don't like that phrase. For one thing, it both states an obvious and an impossibility at the same time. The obvious is that climate is changing, right? I mean, that's obvious. But guys, climate has been changing forever. I mean, there was a different climate in the age of the dinosaurs. 40, 60,000 years ago, we had an ice age. The earth has been warming since that. Has it been warming more in this past 100 years or so, probably due to industrialization? Yes, you know, but the obvious phrase is climate change. The less obvious and the harder to pin down is who's changing the climate and can you change the climate? Both of those things exist in that second part. What's responsible for it and can you actually change it? This is the area where I think we get into huge disagreements. And by the way, people have outlandish ideas about how climate can be affected and the first way that people come into this is through the supernatural means, right? That God has something to do with the climate. He uses it to, to you know, punish people, you know, or to, I don't know, reward people. I guess this goes back to, to the pagan days with the sun being, you know, the thing people worship because it pretty much gave life. But even today, even, and it's not just on the right or the left. Like Marianne Williamson had a tweet that I think she deleted where she talked about the Bahamas. She says, the Bahamas, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas may all be in our prayers now. Millions of us saying Dorian turn away from land is not a wacky idea. It is a creative use of the power of the mind. Two minutes of prayer, visualization, meditation for those in the way of the storm. She's actually suggesting that we have prayed the hurricane away. Just a couple of moments of silence just for that idea. Like God, 
Why the fuck did God put that hurricane there in the first place? If now we have to tell him not to do it. God, you're not being consistent here. You're not making any sense. And then on the right, you have people who said, yeah, the hurricane came to kill those gay people. So God is, you know, he's so powerful, able to make the gay people, but decides it's a mistake. So better send a hurricane to kill him. This doesn't, let's stop doing this. There's no supernatural being out there controlling the weather. Okay. And the other part of it is, how do we actually know how the effect that we have has an effect on actual climate? You know, that's a thing that's hard to quantify. Those are numbers sometimes that you won't know for years. And so what we end up arguing over is the means by which we can do this because it's linked to something that that we want to change, right? Here's the equation that I think we need to change. I think we need to stop saying climate change and we need to say something like, environmental protection, something like that, you know, that we want to protect the environment. Or better yet, how about this? Environment conservatism, that we are environment conservatives. Now, this will fuck with conservatives, by the way, if we start calling ourselves environment conservatives. But what what do we want to do? We want to conserve the environment. Who can be against this, guys? Seriously. But you don't have to make prognostications that are impossible to prove. You can't say, well, in five years, this is irreversible damage. Motherfucker, you don't know that. Who's to say that? So what, in five years, we just give up? And how do, does your carbon tax stop that? I don't know. These are equations we can't do. But if we're talking about environmental conservatism, how can we protect the environment? How can we make it better? How can we clean it up? What are the different ways we can do this? How can we cut down on emissions? For the sake of conserving the environment. That is a good thing that I believe both sides, that you can take politics out of this conversation. Because I really want politics to come out of this. So this is what my proposal is, guys. Let's change the word climate change to environment conservatism. Okay? Now, if that's the broad category, there are a lot of issues under environment conservatism that I think are really good issues. But because it's under climate change, I think people can't hear it for whatever reasons. For instance... And I know uh, Senator Booker talks about this, but environmental justice is a very good idea. What is environmental justice? Environmental justice is usually when uh, communities uh, that are underserved, whether they're poor, communities of color, whatever, are in areas where they have been the recipients of some really horrible shit, (laughs) you know, like lead in the water in Flint, Michigan, right? Things being dumped in the river by corporations and things like this. In an environmental justice way, you don't have to talk about the climate changing to want to do something. You could talk about changing people's lives to make them better to do this under the banner of environmental conservatism, environmental justice. This is what I'm talking about, using the language that people cannot argue with to accomplish some of these things of keeping this place a better place to live in, a cleaner place, a place that's a nicer place for the people who are coming after us. If we end up closing the ozone, that's fucking fantastic. But I don't know how to close the ozone. You know, I don't think anybody really does. You know, ozone may never close. I don't know. But we can do the things to make this earth better. by keeping. Guys, I was, I used, I made fun of the whole straw thing in California. I got to ask for a fucking straw. What's wrong with you guys? But I have to say, as salty as I was about that, you know, some of these things are important. I'll give you an example. I'll end, uh. Marriott, um, I got to give them a lot of credit. These are things as a comedian I would make fun of, but they are getting rid of all their little shampoo, uh, you know, bottles that they give away and that kind of stuff. 
and they're replacing it, you know, with the bigger things that you just, you know, pump out or whatever. You know, and it sounds like, yeah, that's a good thing. But when you look at the numbers, the fact that one company did this, it says they've already replaced the tiny bottles at more than 20% of its 7,000 hotels and properties and announced its plans for nearly all of its properties within uh, 16 months. Marriott estimates it will eliminate the disposal of about 500 million tiny plastic bottles into landfills. That's ridiculous. I mean, good for you, Marriott. That's a corporation um, involved what I think is not in climate change, but environmental protection, environmental conservatism. And the announcement to eliminate the single-use bottle comes more than a year after the company began phasing out disposable plastic straws and drink stirs by offering them only when requested by customers. I make fun of this all the time, but here's the last line that is the clincher. The hotel company says the policy change has so far prevented more than one billion plastic straws from going into landfills. That is crazy. A billion plastic straws, you guys. I can't make fun of the straw thing anymore. I can't. Those are real numbers. Those are real numbers of, of helping the environment, protecting the place we're living in, conserving this, this place that we need so desperately to, you know, to be our, our, our life raft in this universe. So anyhow, that's my pitch. Let's change the way we talk about this. It's not bullshit. I'm All right, we're back. I'm so excited, you guys. We have one of Jesus. I mean, when you think about it, arguably the most successful producer in film and television of the last almost 40 years, you guys. Oh, wow. It's almost 40 <laughs> years. He's done favorites from Night Shift and Splash, Apollo 13, my personal favorite, Beautiful Mind, Empire. Wow. And of course, the classic, the PJs. <laughs> that we did together with Eddie yes, Murphy. The PJs. Brian Grazer. Brian, welcome to the show. And uh, your book, Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection, is a really fantastic and fascinating book. And you're out hawking the book right now. Right? You're taking time out from your, <laughs> from your consummate producing to hawk a book. I really You want am. us to buy something different from yeah. you right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. Consumerism. Um, yes. uh, well, I, I wrote this book based, mm -hmm. it's called Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection. Yes. And it was originally called Eye Contact. Mm. But the publishers thought, oh, you better go face-to-face. -face. Seems uh -huh. a little easier. FaceTime might have been good, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, then that's antithetical mm. to what I'm trying to get yeah. people to do. <laughs> right. um, but basically, it's, um, I realized that my 35 years of, of doing these curiosity conversations, one-on-one sure. curiosity conversations, right. basically all of my success, <laughs> movies and television, and personal success— mm -hmm. um, in meeting, you know, from Jonas Salk to Michael Jackson to everyone, you know, many presidents. Mm -hmm. All this stuff came about because of the bridge of eye contact. Yes. And it's a very simple step. It's just, um, it's very hard to gain trust mm -hmm. or live inside somebody's soul and they yours if you don't start by looking at somebody. Right. With interest. And it's fascinating because it seems like you've had a couple of epiphanies on this. And uh, I like that you start off telling us, I mean, you kind of you really open up in this book in, in some interesting ways, you know. I mean, because it's easy for you to be Brian Grazer, the producer, <laughs> that, yeah. you know, it's kind of the sphinx out there doing this stuff. But when you talk about being a kid and having dyslexia or being shy to look at the teacher, 
Like a lot of people can relate to that looking away because you don't want to be called on. Yeah. You know, and that type of feeling. And what was what was that first feeling where you turned that around? Were you in college at the time or? Probably in the middle part of high school. High school. Uh-huh. But definitely in college, I was able to mm-hmm. access eye contact and curiosity and use it as a superpower to to do actually really well in college. Mm-hmm. Um which is kind of ironic because I was acutely dyslexic, mm-hmm. as you said, in elementary school. And I, there was so much shame avoidance constantly because I, the teacher would look at me and I would look away. Yeah. So you just can't know the answer That's because you Those can't days, read. Those kids were called dumb pretty much or they were, were made dumb. fun of. Yeah, or, was, and, it, and that's got to affect your confidence also it, too, right? It does, yes. Yeah. It does. So it in my case— I mean, I had a lot of drive, mm-hmm. and I just I wanted to find my way out of that problem. Mm-hmm. And so trying to find your way out of the problem of being unable to answer questions and avoiding shame and avoiding, as you said, feeling sort of isolated right. in your classroom. And in the day, it's even referenced in the book that mm-hmm. I had a teacher in third grade that took me out <laughs> to talk to me, and she picked up a, she grabbed a board and slapped me in the face with a board. Uh. Brings Catholic school memories back to me. Yeah. Yeah, they would do things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but it makes you very resourceful. If mm-hmm. you if you don't crash, you know, if you don't right. if you don't collapse and just give up, uh, mm-hmm. which I didn't want to do, you find ways to get around it. You know, mm-hmm. um, first you're doing things to avoid all the shame, and then you're trying to find ways to succeed. Yeah. So it's survival than success. <laughs> so And it seemed like you had a motor from the beginning. It seemed like a couple of motors. One was of course a success motor that you wanted to be successful at something. But the other seems like you had a curiosity motor I that did. was kind of driving that. Is that is that right? True. Mm-hmm. I had yeah, I had a curiosity engine that yeah. I that that helped me. Uh, mm-hmm. but without being able to read, you had to it was hard to connect those dots. But once I realized that I could satiate uh, my curiosity by asking questions, mm. actually looking at people and asking questions, Right. then I gained so much. And that, be- that began in high school, but really took action. I- I'm still growing, mm-hmm. oddly enough, at this age. I'm still growing and learning how to be present. I mean, because re- if you really find that if you're really present, people feel that mm-hmm. and you— and many things happen. <laughs> you're right. trusted. Mm-hmm. And if you're trusted, people will share, you know, they'll share what will be, you know, insights or secrets right. or their secret uh, as to how they got where they got. Because mm-hmm. everyone has, you know, a journey that is of interest. Their origin story. Yeah. Can you do me a favor before you go on on that point? I, don't, I haven't heard anyone really describe what dyslexia feels like. Like, what did it feel like? Do the words jumble? Does it uh, does it look like a foreign language is on the page? <laughs> like, what does that feel like to you? Um, well, it's not you know, it's it's not like some psychedelic scramble. Okay. For me, everything's sort of coming to you from the right as to po- as opposed to the left. Mm-hmm. So you read from <laughs> left to right, mm-hmm. but I. I still have a very hard time doing it, but I can. Mm-hmm. I can't spell at all. Hmm. And only two days ago, 
I inverted words, mm-hmm. and I was really frustrated. It's very frustrating, incredibly frustrating. Because it, it doesn't go away. It's something that stays with it you. It doesn't right? go away, but mm-hmm. it's not nearly as acute as it was mm-hmm. when I was dumb, <laughs> when, I, when, I was, when I was branded, thrown in that right. category. So, but basically, you just can't, you can't look at a word and mm-hmm. get it phonetically. You can't spell phonetically. Wow. The letters just don't compute to the word. Mm-hmm. So, if, you're, if I'm looking at your poster here, it says the strong arm of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can do it, but, you know, this has been a long time of working on it. Right. But, you know, as a kid, I would never be able to read the strong arm of the law. I would probably, I don't know what I would do. I might look at strong or I might look at law, but I definitely wouldn't start with the. I'd skip, I might, I wouldn't even skip over it. I'd start at the end and then I'd try to find my way back and then try to shift, then I'd try to say the sentence so it's a whole different way to process what's happening on that page it is yeah and then you choose a career where you have to read scripts all the time you have to read scripts yeah yeah but I was able like in college I literally I I found a way to discipline myself what did you how did you get through college and that's a lot of reading that goes on well there is a lot of reading I I created a a system to you know a test taking system that Mm -hmm. worked for me and that was just you know, it's like get. It's like every class was like a rough cut, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, in making a movie, like every class was a pure like aggregation of words and thoughts and ideas, mm-hmm. and it would be all in this big pot. <laughs> wow. And then I would go home mm-hmm. and I would try to make sense of those that pot of words. Wow. Uh-huh. And then what I would do is I would I would make sense of that pot of words uh-huh. so that it was a, a very long rough cut. And I would just keep refining it and refining it and refining it. So that it refining me like synthesizing what would be, let's say, 25 pages of a day's collection of words. Mm. And then I'd refine it. And then by the time I had to take a test what I would do is break it down into like two or three or four pages maximum. And then I'd yellow line the sentences Mm -hmm. or words that ignited the ideas. Mm -hmm. And I was very good at ideas and I was very good at understanding how to understand. I'm very good at understanding the heartbeat of what something is. Sure. So once I get, you know, in the car, I know how to make, I know how to build an engine. Right. So, I could always, you know, of course, in my current life, when, you know, when people might try to bullshit me or whatever, <laughs> I, I definitely know right. how to build the car. Because mm-hmm. I've done every crummy job and I've done I've done the good jobs, the bad jobs, you know. So I, I do know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of great. Like, you know how things work. Right. And so in these curiosity conversations, which, you know, are all about, like, getting out of my comfort zone, it sort of forces you to struggle through language mm. um, because if I'm talking to a physicist, I'm, I'm trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm talking to many different Nobel laureates. There was a Nobel laureate that's a friend of mine, of many of them, but one was, his name is, he's still a friend. He's got to be in his 90s, named Eric Kandel. He won a Nobel Prize in medicine in 2000 for memory, oddly, because I was really curious about how memory works, right. as we all are. Yeah. So, you have to try to understand different languages and then 
all businesses seem to access on the similar principles, mm -hmm. which you probably already know. <laughs> and those principles are connection, which you talk about is, is a major one, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. You can't build a team without connection. Right. Even if you think you're doing it all on your own, it's pretty hard to do everything all on your own. And why would you want to? And why would you? <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, early on, your now partner, Ron Howard, who you're, you know, we're doing a project with, yeah. kind of led you to, I don't know if it's your second epiphany, but it certainly kind of changed the way you interacted because he pointed out that you weren't looking at people in the eye. Correct. Yeah. So successfully got through college. Mm -hmm. That meant uh, there was some evidence that I was smart yeah. enough. If something's going on yeah, there. That's good, right. It was working. <laughs> and then I pretty much demystified how – Leverage works in Hollywood, mm. having had this law clerk job. Uh -huh. I turned this crummy job and crummy little office into the Brian Greaser world, you know, and uh -huh. and would reach out every day to meet somebody that was mastering show business. Yeah, you you talk about how you had a plan, like a goal of talking to a person a day for a every while? Every single day for a wow. year and a half till I got fired. And it was like a new person. A you, new person every day. And you had to ask them questions? Is that what it was? I would ask them. I would, I would say, hi, my name is Brian Grazer. Uh -huh. uh, I want five minutes with your boss. I'm definitely not going to ask for a job. Uh -huh. I'm not going to put him out, make him uncomfortable. I have no agenda other than I respect him beyond belief. Right. And then I would state some little nuance proving that I knew who their, the boss was. Right. So if it's uh, Jules Stein or Lou Wasserman, the founders, creators of MCA, sure. which owned Universal, mm -hmm. I had some, you know, I would have some proof evidence in this little conversation that I knew who they were. Uh -huh. And I what, did, and what I did would homework. you ask them um, as an example? Like, what uh, would you ask Lou Wasserman? Well, I'd say to Lou Wasserman, <laughs> um, a version of, well, Lou Wasserman specifically didn't let me in his office. That's hilarious. Man. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Lou Wasserman specifically, normally what I would try to ask Lou Wasserman is like, well, how did you begin? I think you began in Chicago. And mm -hmm. how did you end up over here? And how did, how did it turn into show business? That wasn't actually yeah. your business itself. And what were the commonalities as to what you did in Chicago and what you did here? But I didn't get that far with uh, Lou Wasserman. Mm -hmm. He was kind of, you know, he was able to read my essence pretty quickly. Uh -huh. And he put his hands up in front of me like, hold on there, kid. And so we were on the 15th floor of the Universal uh, building, tower. Right. And he said, you know, like, put his hands up like, don't go any further. And he r went back to his office and he came back with a legal pad of paper. And I, I remember so vividly, I've told the story, a 2-H pencil. 2-H pencil mm -hmm. is a pretty, it's a thick pencil that really leaves a mark. And he said, hold the pencil and put the pencil in one hand, put the pad in the other, and they are, and bring the pencil to the pad. And it is worth more that way than it is as separate parts. And he said, and then he said, get out of here. <laughs> So I get in the elevator. Thanks, I, I didn't know what I didn't know what happened. Right. And I realized what he was saying is you don't really have anything of any value. You better create value. Wow. And so the way to create value is to put the pencil to the paper and write some ideas. And I did it. And wow. I started writing many, you know, many ideas, including uh, the movie Splash and yeah. the idea of Night Shift and some TV shows mm -hmm. and hundreds of uh, things, but about 
seven or eight came to fruition. And you figured that you wanted to be a movie producer at that time. You were, that's what you were figuring out for yourself, that you wanted to produce movies? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I was figuring out. Right. But I just didn't know what to do. I, didn't, right. I wasn't studying film in high school or in college. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have that interest. I just, I just wanted to find a way to be respected. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I actually make movies about several different themes, and that's one of them. It's a, mm-hmm. a man's identity. Yeah. So Friday Night Lights would be about a man's identity. Right. And American Gangster, oddly enough, would be about a man's identity. Right. To me. And then I build movies from the inside out. Uh-huh. Uh, probably like you would do Absolutely. as a writer. Knowing what it's about and what is the what is the actual story that you're telling. Yeah. A lot of people get caught up in the plots and the events, but they lose yeah. sight of, well, what is this about? What is yeah. this about? Right. Why does it exist? Yeah. So to me, everything is all is all about being able to access people, mm-hmm. live inside their authentic self, and you know I don't, you probably wouldn't know this, but we've had because we've had success together, and I love working with you. It's always Likewise, a joy. Yeah. But if if a writer is in, comes into my office mm-hmm. and you know is is brought in by an executive, and they have they always pitch, the executive will say, oh he wrote this, he wrote right. that, he wrote this. But if he doesn't say anything original, which can be quite often, mm-hmm. um, with their very good credits, I just won't hire them. Mm. They have to have some hint of originality. Yeah, it can be it could be in the style, their style or what they wear. I don't mean like high style. Mm-hmm. It could be a manner, you know, a human being's manner, or it's better if it's what they say. <laughs> right. Is it kind of an authenticity that you're looking for? It's an authentic, mm-hmm. a truth, a, right. a raw, Being vulnerable true to truth. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. because that's the only thing you probably feel the same way. That's of of value, really. Absolutely. Because Completely. if I'm looking for prognosticators, I'll go to that algorithm. Right. <laughs> or just <laughs> get, like, the, get all my curated ideas. <laughs> just hire some haters. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. And I love your story uh, early on. Because part of listening, let's talk about this, because um, I want to talk about just eye contact itself, why okay. eye contact is so important. Yes. Uh, we're going back to how Ron Howard pointed out that you weren't making eye contact in meetings, oh, sorry, something yeah. that you said you weren't even aware of at the time. But once you did that, it kind of opened things up for you in a certain way, right? It really did. Uh-huh. Yes. Did, now, my question is, did that help you not just hear the person, which obviously is true, you're focusing on them more. I call that active listening, you know? Yeah. And But... That also helps you to kind of understand yourself a little better, too, don't you think? Yes. Mm -hmm. It does. So what Ron said is the writers, their name were Lowell and Bobaloo. They wrote Night Shift and Splash. Classic writers, you guys. Two of my faves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he said, um, Brian, when when we meet with Lowell and Bobaloo, you don't really look at them. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I heard everything they said. I mean, I'm contributing and— and, uh, you know, we're all collaborating together. Mm-hmm. And he said, but you don't really look at them. And it, um, even though you get it and all that, uh, they, it makes them feel bad. Mm-hmm. And this is Opie telling you this. This is Opie. Yeah. It's <laughs> 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 Richard Cunningham saying these things. You got to you you listen. Gotta listen. And he yeah. doesn't want to do that. He's not a mm-hmm. confrontational guy at, at all. He's sort of what he appears to be. Yeah, he is. And so it's very rare when he's going to sort of, Throw out an a, an instruction, or right. a, or a, it's more like a declarative sentence, like "Hey, Brian, you know you're hurting their feelings." Mm-hmm. And I thought about it because it really cut right through, and I thought, 
it must be hurting their feelings and they must not feel respected. I'm sure mm-hmm. they feel like Brian's really smart and he's knows what's going on and he gets mm-hmm. movies made, but he doesn't really respect us mm-hmm. um, the way he doesn't make us feel like a human being. Right. And that is essential. It's one of these mm. things that you have to do today. You know, it's even more important today because we're all on our screens. We have, we're loaded with props, right? Right. With iPads and iPhones and on the phones and Apple, you know, or whatever we have plugged in our ear right. to do. Right. And, and um, I just think it's if you walk into an elevator or down the street or whatever, you, wherever you're mm-hmm. going, the beginning of the story is when you actually look at somebody. Right. And people remember it. Yeah. They remember if you, you know, if you actually look at them with meaning. Yeah, and not intent, not like deep intentionality, and mm-hmm. it's not a stare. It's just like <laughs> yes. it's it's an openness. It's loving. Mm-hmm. When a baby opens their eyes to their to a to an adult or their parent, mm. and the parent looks at them with loving eyes, it immediately it does produce oxytocin, and it does. Mm. It's a biochemical event, and it's the same thing. When you, you know, when we're, on, we remember our very first date in our life, mm-hmm. when we actually looked at the girl or the guy or however the thing plays out and, and something magical happens. Well, the magical thing is, is you stop thinking about what you're saying and you're just being. Right. And it really, something magical does happen. It's why they call it love at first sight and not love at first thought, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I, think, I think I love her. Yeah, yes. I like that. I'm taking that to my next podcast. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> love at first I got year. a lot of these things I can throw out. Mm. Top, right? um, That's good. Well, making, I've always felt there's this distinction between listening and hearing, which you, you're talking about here, you yeah. know, because listening involves the other person and hearing just involves the self, you know. I mean, yeah. Siri hears us, you know, or yeah. whatever. But, um, and also it points out between just being a boss and what it is to be a leader. Yeah. Right. And I think yes. there has to be active listening if you want to lead people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In order to create a movement. <laughs> yes. Whether it's the movement of making a movie or television show mm-hmm. or creating your app or create just doing anything, you, yeah. you need people and you have to find ways to incentivize mm-hmm. them by being a leader. Yeah. And it's got to be by being inspirational. And in your job, there are so many moments where that ship can wreck, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, of exactly. making movies. Right? I think a lot of people don't know how hard movie making is, you know. And it would seem to me is is connecting with people and maintaining those connections one of the keys i know there are many other things but like making sure that uh people stay invested in things for instance and that type of thing yeah do you use a connection in those ways like like how do you maintain connections wow that's a good one um Mm -hmm. that's a good question well i think you the way you maintain connections is Having breathing life into a vision and mm-hmm. having a shared vision with somebody. Mm-hmm. So, what well, I, I, and there's a story in my book, there's many stories that, that involve that sustaining yeah. a relationship for long periods of time. Right. In the case of um, American Gangster, yeah. there were so many times the studio crashed the movie. Unbelievable. But for some reason, I even wondered myself, I had before, while I was writing the book, I asked, Nicholas Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas, and he actually 
turned me on to the idea of American Gangster because uh-huh. it was a short because it was a short story about Frank Lucas, uh-huh. who who was played by uh, Denzel Washington. Right. And I said, well, how? Do, why did these guys? Why did you guys all stay with me? Uh-huh. You were all stayed with me for like over five years. You asked them after the fact. After I asked. Fra- I asked. Uh-huh. Um, I asked Nick Pelleggi that. Why uh-huh. did? Why do you think Denzel and and Steve Zalian, who wrote the script, and and of course Russell Crowe, why did you guys all stick with me when when you kind of knew through empirical knowledge that it was crashing, <laughs> uh-huh. and that I mean they actually shut the movie down and I resurrected it, and, and he said, well, you gave so much of yourself, and we all felt that, mm-hmm. so we had this shared dream, and we. You know, version of like we just we believed in you, <laughs> believed in you, and it's um, I get kind of moved by it actually, mm. because it's this strange intangible that that can happen. Yeah, where people will stick with you, based on like the most intangible thing, an idea, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you, you know, impregnate them with this idea and vision and. And it's not just a story; it's a theme that matters mm-hmm. to that we all that a movie, you know, a good movie will access on. Like in the case of a Beautiful Mind, for example, it was that cr- also crashed, <laughs> and then I just started up again. And I think if you know, if people share the intention of what it can be, mm-hmm. like Beautiful Mind was all designed to destigmatize mental disability. So it's about how we look at people all Uh all the time. It reframes our vision so that we see someone with even the mildest disability, not to have to be screaming out in the middle of the street at a car, but the mildest disability, it's where you, if you you have compassion for that person, some understanding, Uh and you have gratitude about your own life, you you reach out, you know. You don't try to drive around that person. Or compassion is 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 really essential. It'll make you feel good and them feel good. Right. Yeah. And it's funny how, like, when you just talked about that, I'm really struck by how you you use explicit human terms to talk about this. You know, you don't. It doesn't sound like movie terms, which yeah. I, I find is great, you, which mm. I think is a key to your success also. You know, oh, when I, you know, I've been a big fan of your work way before I, I got a chance. I was lucky enough really? to work. Oh, yeah, Parenthood, I talked about it. was one of my favorites. Apollo 13 is still one of my tops, you know, in wow. terms of movies. But I love Splash and Night Shift and all those movies. I thought they were great, you know. Oh, but there's always something working in there that I felt, you know. And I was interested in in Splash going back. I haven't thought about Splash in a long time, but when you talked about it in the book, it's interesting that it took you so long, first of all, to to explain to people why this had to be a movie. Like <laughs> yeah. you were going about it kind of the wrong way. Yeah. And I think that your Splash experience helped you to put this in a different – the way you pitched it became different, right? Do you want yes. to talk about that a little bit? Well – Like y- when did you get the idea for Splash? I got the idea for Splash uh-huh. when I was 25. Mm-hmm. Because what happened is I produced some movies for TV when I was 24, 25 that were really successful. Mm-hmm. And and that was like a hard grind to even make that happen. So it happens. And I realized I went from being like this kid that grew up in the San Fernando Valley, you know, hoping girls would talk to me, <laughs> to like all girls, every girl wanted to be with me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
wow, this is a really crazy thing. <laughs> this is Hollywood, I guess. I am now in Hollywood. <laughs> right. So I thought, um, and I don't know if you know this. Do you know this? So on Zuma Beach, this movie called Zuma Beach. Um, I can tell yeah, you very quickly. Okay, yeah, go for it. I mean, if you like it. Okay, uh -huh. so basically oh, okay. this. My very first mm -hmm. movie for television mm -hmm. was uh, 25 or 24 and a half. And I was on this my set, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, which was on the beach of Paradise Cove, and making pro producing a movie called Zuma Beach. Which is crazy. And mm -hmm. I see the stars of our movie, which was Suzanne Summers and Rosanna Arquette and uh, Tanya Roberts and a bunch of really very attractive girls. And mm -hmm. Suzanne Summers was the biggest television star. And I got her to do this movie. <laughs> and I there's a girl sitting amongst them that I recognize. And her name was Margie Bailey. And Margie Bailey went to USC with me, mm -hmm. but would never say hello to me ever, right. like ever. Mm -hmm. And so I waved to Margie Bailey mm -hmm. while she's sitting next to Suzanne Summers, and and she shushes me like, shh, we're on a movie set like that. <laughs> she she did what she would have done to me at USC. She's like, what are you, delivering lunches here, Brian? Yeah, shut up. Exactly. <laughs> Quiet. So, so she shushes me to shut up, uh -huh. That's and hilarious. then somebody whispers to her, not somebody, Rosanna Arquette whispers to her, clearly she said, that guy is the producer. Mm -hmm. Margie zooms around, this is a campfire scene, uh, and she zooms around and says, hey, Brian, oh my God, I didn't know you were the producer. So I said, well, I am, mm -hmm. and she's, well, well, let's do something tonight. See, now I'm salty about Margie. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I could have gone either way on that, but I right. chose to go out with her. <laughs> you, were 20 you were 25. I yeah, understand. 25. Mm -hmm. And I did. And then I thought, wow, this is what this is all about here. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, what if what if I could actually meet the the better version of Margie? Like a, <laughs> oh like a really nice girl. Uh -huh. And, you know, why don't I try to... Why don't I create what I think would be the perfect girl for Brian? Mm -hmm. You know, someone that, you know, that is that is you know pure in intention and all that, and mm -hmm. pretty at the same time. And I thought, well, that would be impossible to do in Hollywood. And then I thought, well, that'd be a really interesting thing to write. And I started thinking, why don't I try to write what that would be mm -hmm. for this sort of middle Who's class? Who's the perfect issue? mate? Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that was the whole premise. And then I superimposed this mermaid on top of it to give it a fantasy dimension and make her even more unattainable, mm -hmm. this perfect girl. And that became what was Splash. And you told people, I want to do a mermaid movie. <laughs> so I would tell people I want to do a mermaid movie. And uh -huh. then I'd, they would just ding it out as like the stupidest idea because they only saw the exterior, the exterior of that story. Right. And uh, they never, you know, I wasn't a big enough producer at all to be able to say, well, wait, this is about human nature. This is about how, what we want as human beings. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, this is really about love. It's not about a mermaid. The mermaid part was just a gimmick. And it <laughs> took all those years of rejection to realize that. Yeah. That that's how you had to pitch it. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. and by, by the rejection sometimes fine tunes the idea. Mm -hmm. Because at, at one time it was from the perspective of the woman. Mm -hmm. And then it became eventually the perspective of Tom, who was Tom Hanks, the guy. And so changing perspective often changes, uh, often changes mm -hmm. and helps a story. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of how that began. But it was like, it had to be, it was like six years till I finally got it made. I probably had the idea at 24 and then I figured it out at 29 right. or something.
Have you have there been themes that you feel that you connect to more than others in your work when you look back, or is it something that just evolves with you? You know, as you've gone along, or because a, a lot of people have that recurring theme that you see all the time. You know, in the work, you know. Um, I have like three or four themes that mm-hmm. I like. One is rooting for family. Oh, so when a studio executive says, I don't like that idea, I can say, how could you not root for a family to get together? <laughs> and then they, That's a pretty good line, yeah. actually. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you, so that's how that works. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I made Parented, as you Absolutely. know, and I did Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. I've done a few movies that where you root for families. Right. Or Even Empire is a Empi- kind Empire of a meta for, example. Yeah, which I think is in this building, isn't it? <laughs> oh, is it? I think our staff there? is in this building. Oh, yeah, okay. It yeah. is. Our staff, the writing staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Empire is that. It's just, it's a bigger than life soap opera. Sure. But it's really about rooting for family. Mm-hmm. And as much crazy, you know, as wild as Cookie Lines could be, you know, Taraji, you just root for her. Right. You know, she, so, so that, that for sure. Um, I root for, um, I always root for self, you know, movies that are about self-worth or television about self-worth. Okay. Give me an example. Well, Friday Night Lights was definitely about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what happened is a lot of these stories are based on some little insider moment that I've either experienced myself. That was my experience. I got cut from high school football Mm. at Chatsworth High in a a really embarrassing way with like 200 guys and – and it was Coach Ogawa said, everybody, everyone here say your name and status. And so I say, Brian Grazer, status. I said, uh, tailback. He said, incorrect, cut. <laughs> so <laughs> That's cold-blooded. That was, That's cold-blooded. That was cold-blooded. And yeah. it, but but I, I just thought to myself, wow, when he was three guys down before he got to Grazer, I was like a human being. Yeah. I was a person. I had an identity. Mm-hmm. I'd gotten through Hell Week. When they got to me, then I was no, you know, I was, I was kind of invalidated. I was invalidated in that room for mm. being, you know, I wasn't a human being. I wasn't part of it. My status right. wasn't Brian Grazer or he, Tailback. He marged you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. So he, uh, so you look for that, and you, yeah, and you can find some of that interesting. Sometimes it's a group thing too. I find Apollo thirteen kind of has a little bit of that. It does. You know, where it's like, I disagree. This will be our finest moment. You know, mm-hmm. it's about, you know, what is the best of people in situations and that sort of thing. Um, um, Eight Mile kind of has a little bit of that, you know. Eight Mile's definitely about yeah. that because Eight yeah. Mile is a guy that has so much shame yeah. from his early growing up in life and right. trauma that he's trying to get over mm-hmm. that he can't even look at an audience, right? Yeah. And once he, then he's sort of forces himself to to get through it and eventually be able to do those rap battles. Mm-hmm. And so winning the rap battle in the very end was important as a story point, but the most important thing was after the rap battle where he says he admits, you know, he sheds himself of all his injuries. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, my mom was a slut and grew up in a trailer park and yeah you did fuck my girl I'm mean, allowed to say that on the show oh, yeah you say anything on this oh one. really okay <laughs> and and so being able to disavow those injuries mm-hmm. and separate yourself from them because they have power over you was yeah. was the thing it was self-actualizing mm-hmm. 
So it was definitely about identity and self-worth. And was there a third one, a third thing? A third theme in that movie? No, in, in oh, your work in general. That have had, that's had that? No, the, the stuff that you look for. Oh, the... oh, oh, you mean themes. Sorry, sure. theme, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, the other one is the, really is love. Hmm. So a beautiful mind is is what I told you before, but mm-hmm. you know it's 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 story design is to help destigmatize mental disability and sure. have us look at people differently. Mm-hmm. But he survived through love. Like he would have never made it had his wife not hung in. Mm-hmm. And conversely, he hung in with his wife in some ways and and love. So mm-hmm. love is a really powerful theme because we all definitely have to root for love and and I, I I want to send good vibes out into the world. I, I don't I don't make horror films. Yeah, I may I think I've produced like ninety movies and wow. several hundred hours of television shows. But I, I redemption of some kind is uh, essential ingredient mm-hmm. in the stories that I'm involved in. Yeah, it's interesting. I get involved with. I, I like reading how. Uh, the way that you meet people and the way that you talk about it is kind of interesting. One was, uh, <laughs> were you scared like when you first met Oprah? <laughs> I mean, it oh, seemed yeah. like you were a little nervous or something. Well, why was that? I, I mean, be- well, it is Oprah. I get it that. It is part Oprah. Of it. Well, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I don't really know that I'm Brian Grace, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you know, um, so, so basically, I told Spike Lee, I don't know if that's in the book, but I told Spike Lee, that I really, really, really want to meet Oprah. <laughs> That's funny. And he said, well, why don't you call her? And he go, I said, well, I can't call Oprah Winfrey. She won't call back. And he goes, I think she will. Call, Try it. Uh-huh. And I called her, and she called back. And uh, actually, that, at that exact moment that she called back, I was in my office in Beverly Hills, and Jennifer Lopez, I was meeting with Jennifer Lopez, Mm-hmm. Um, and she was singing. She had five. She had was singing one song that turned into five songs, all in Spanish. Mm-hmm. But she was really committed to singing these songs. And I was in your office. In my office. Wow. She's in my office, and I wasn't even sitting in the the couch part of my my office. I was sitting mm-hmm. at my desk, and she just started singing them. And this is my new song. And then she sang another one. And my office opened the door while she's singing, and and she looked like, hey, I'm singing at, to my assistant. <laughs> and my assistant, I said, well, what is it? And mm-hmm. she said, Oprah Winfrey is on the telephone. I go, Oprah Winfrey? Actually, Oprah Winfrey? Uh-huh. And I said to Jennifer, I really have to talk to her. And she was a little bit like, you know, I am singing <laughs> to you right now. <laughs> and, oh, man. And... Um, <laughs> I, and so I did ask if I could take a break and talk to Oprah. So mm-hmm. I talked to her for a few minutes and said, I'm just wondering, like, if we could ever, ever, ever get together. Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah, let's do it Thursday. I said, okay. And I met her for breakfast Thursday. And uh, Gail, her longtime friend, was there. Mm-hmm. And the three of us had breakfast at the Beller Hotel. Very nice. Yeah. And, uh, and what was the thing about... Um Oprah and the way that she communicates, did, did that give you insight also into this yes. whole face-to-face kind of eye contact thing? Does she have, like, it seems like Oprah has a special superpower in that area. Does no she? doubt. She yeah. really does. Mm-hmm. Um, she just, well, 
she is Oprah, so mm-hmm. she has a she's you know a force field of of energy and charisma. Mm-hmm. But she does not want you to be nervous. She's right. incredibly calm. Her body is calm. Mm-hmm. Her face is calm. She listens. She cares. You could immediately tell she is very present and she cares. Mm-hmm. And you feel it right in your, you feel her heart, you know? And um, and that causes you to say things you might not want to say or mm-hmm. or things that you want to say, but you would would not tell anyone else. You wouldn't be trusting quite. enough. Yeah, right? you wouldn't mm-hmm. be trusting enough. And I, in that case, you know, told her a story that, was that was very personal involving like or, you know my marriage at the time that mm. was very wasn't going well at, at all and um, she said well um, she said betrayal is impossible to get over mm. just can't get over betrayal I mm-hmm. said but she said it as she really listened and collected the information and said it as a point of fact and I and I accepted it as a point of fact mm-hmm. and it was incredibly impactful to me. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's hard? Do you think it's harder to have these things? I mean, a lot of your examples in the book are business, mm-hmm. you know, and you do talk about your personal life a bit. You know, you've had several marriages. You mentioned how the experience of meeting your current wife and how, you know, we talked about the love at first sight type of yeah, thing. Yeah, you that know? was a love at first sight yeah, for sure. Which is very interesting. But on the road to that, and, you know, I, I've certainly experienced. It seems, why is it harder in our personal lives, this type of connection thing? It is, because yeah, business, is. I can compartmentalize that, you know? Like, yeah. those connections, maybe I'm not threatened by it or whatever. Do you think that's what it is? Are we more threatened in our personal lives when, you know, that <laughs> that eye contact thing or that connection thing? Because it is harder for people, I think. Well, we're just less likely, I think, if, mm-hmm. if you're saying we as we. Yeah, as, I think as we're a less, group. Yeah, I think we as a group, um, you know, are more focused on uh, survival skills. Mm-hmm. And that's like our job. So our skills, you know, the eye contact, the conversation, the nuance, everything we read off somebody, um, we're, we're better suited to, to determine that. Are they talented? Are they not talented? Were they... You know, there it it works better for the template of our jobs as mm-hmm. opposed to the template of our lives. Where we, mm. I think it's it's harder for me. I just know it's harder to read nuances mm-hmm. in in meeting a girl. Like, what are her motives? I don't ever know anyone's motives. <laughs> <laughs> in work, it's pretty clear their motive is to get a job. Yeah, I mean, it's crystal clear. It's very. They're here because I either want them to do a job or they want to do a job and, and sell themselves as a job or we have mutuality and we, I want them, they want me, but we're just trying to see if we align, mm-hmm. our visions align. And those things are, it's a more academic use. It's a little more narrow, I guess, the parameters. Are, yeah, and they're, well, they're you know. specific. Mm-hmm. Can that person... Uh, Write the PJs. <laughs> right. Can, can that person, <laughs> you know, write the, I'm doing now Aretha Franklin. Wow. For 10 hours. Um, so I did this, I do this, we, we produce a thing, a genius, it's the genius series for National Geographic. Yeah, that's great And show, we did yeah. Einstein, we did Picasso, and now we're doing Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. 
So it took a very long time, but we figured out that it was Susan Laurie Parks that would be the perfect writer for this. Her mm -hmm. voice, her energy, her truth was best aligned to Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a, a very specific thing. It's prescriptive, right? I mean, I know the job definition. Now, can it go wrong? Of course, everything can go wrong. There's multiple hundreds of variables, as you know, mm -hmm. in making a successful TV show or movie. But uh, I think we connected those dots properly. But in life, it's, it's very experimental. Yeah. You know, we don't know how that chemistry is going to work. The mm -hmm. randomness of chemistry that creates compatibility or lack of compat compatibility or what's the difference between infatuation and sustainable <laughs> relationships. Right, absolutely. Very good questions. Yeah. yeah. You know, or I love her. And then three weeks later, like, what happened to her? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just didn't click. I was, right. you know, whatever. So, I mean, that's... That's why there's dating apps. <laughs> well, it's so. interesting to me. It seems like the more uh, technologically we get connected, the less connected we are physiologically. You know, it Correct. seems like, you know, which is kind of the irony of our times. It know? is. Yeah. Which is, I think, a theme we'll, we see more and more even out there, you know, in, in movies and TV shows and that sort of thing. All right. Let me do to you what you did to all these producers, okay, for the sake of people trying to break into the business out there. Okay. People want to be the next Brian Grazer. Give me your secret to success in Hollywood. Tell me. What do you What do? you do? How do you do it? How does Brian do it? Sure. Or someone, okay. Some, okay. someone wants okay. to make it today. Okay. How did they become the next Brian okay. Grazer? What I do is I try to know the, – the most important thing is to know yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can't know somebody else – unless you know yourself. So I think there's a Tao expression of look into the mirror and dust it off and see yourself, and then you can see others. Mm -hmm. And and that's really, uh, you're smiling. Is it true or not true? I don't know. I, I think it is a journey of that, you know? Yeah. Some people have a, a connection with themselves, I think, without consciously knowing it, but they just have an ability to tap into that. To their know? truth? I think so. Some people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think... I found a couple of writers mm -hmm. in my life, actually, that I felt like, wow, that person is really connected to some original, you know, to the source. Yeah. So for me, I'm very, very curious, mm -hmm. and I'm always, I'm in search of original ideas. Yeah. So uh, that, that's the beginning step. If, if it's not an original idea or a world that's that is seen through a unique perspective, one that's never been done, I I'm, don't want to do it. Right. Um, I also paint. And it's relevant to this because mm. I knew I could never be a great painter because I'm not right. artisan that way. I can't sure. paint perfectly, you know, like the perfect portrait or the perfect. But, but what I can control is I can control whether it's original. Hmm, that's interesting. So I can control whether I allow or whether I paint original ideas mm -hmm. and and do the best I can to execute them. Or in the case of a movie or television show, I can control whether it's an original idea or whether it's a copied idea. That is that is fantastic advice, by the way. Um, I always, in fact, even now when I go into meetings, I say one of my goals is to put something on TV that hasn't been on TV yet. You know? Yeah. And you see a lot of people, a lot of young writers especially, will, 
and by young, I mean people who are who are beginning it. You know, they always want to compare it to something else. You know, right? This, always. This is da 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 meets da da. I'm like, well, why would I want that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. I'd rather them say. This is based on a story my grandfather used to talk to me about. You know, I'm yeah. now I'm in. Tell me yeah, about that story. Exactly. You know? Me too. But it it feels derivative when it's based on something else yeah, that's already there because it. I'm like that's already there. Yeah. You know? um, People so screw up. Only the other day, some guy really screwed up. He came into my office, um, has ton of credibility, mm-hmm. and then, and he really wanted to do be involved in one of the, my television series uh-huh. actually. Hmm, and very really, really wanted to be involved. <laughs> and but he started telling me about that he had this one and then that project. Pretty soon all of a sudden I'm hearing he's got like six or seven projects. Mm-hmm. And I just said, listen, I have to be really honest. I don't want to be part of your quiver of shows. Right. Um if and so I, I don't I just can't mm-hmm. do do my thing with you because I'm just then part of one of your six or seven shows that you tell the next guy at the next meeting. Mm-hmm. So I definitely don't, and I thought he was kind of talented. So, and I've, that's happened to me more than once mm-hmm. where I, I seek out somebody that's really done good work and then they tell you they have like seven projects. Mm-hmm. And that's just not, we're, I think we're doing this, Larry, to be special, not to be ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> Our goal is to yeah. be special, not that's ordinary. So and yeah. it, it exists in many different ways. So I have to, since I have you here, yes. I will thank you personally okay. because it was a highlight of my career to work with you on the PJs. I couldn't believe I was working with you and Ron Howard on that show. I thought I had, oh, my God. And I'll remember, I'll tell the audience this. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you remember that, but I remember we had one of our first big meetings. And uh, here I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm in a meeting with Brian and Ron and all these people. And we're just trying to think about what is this. And And I remember there was... We for some reason we talked about Madonna's book Sex or something like that or oh yeah I don't know if you had just gotten it and you were kind of curious about it and every time something was said I kept jamming in a joke <laughs> based ah! on what was gonna that's funny and I kept making you laugh and I'll never forget that and then you said who are you <laughs> you said something like oh my that God. you said it in a way that I'm like like you said. It was almost like, how come I don't know who you are? You're hilarious, yeah. Yeah. you know. And it was this recognition that I never forgot. It was like, wow, oh, you wow. know. Thanks. He really recognized something there that it's not just, oh, that's funny. It's like, wait, you're saying you, this is really funny what you're saying. Oh, it was almost I love that it. type of thing. Yes. And I'll never forget that. It, it was kind of an acknowledgement that I belong there, you know. Yeah. Because like, I mean, we're we're in a room with Eddie Murphy and all these people, you know. Yes. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. Oh. It really. At, for a young producer at the time, you know, it gave me validation. It was very cool. You're so welcome. It was a story. Yeah. I remember the impact of that, actually, because I do remember thinking, that, I thought, mm-hmm. who is this guy? Like, <laughs> right. how do I not know him? <laughs> yeah. He's super funny. Like, yeah. we have to have him in our, yeah. you know, on our team with us, you know? Like, and it's yeah. funny, because I've always been kind of under the I have the best the thoughts radar. of you, probably, oh, and originating from that moment. It's yeah. interesting how the way you appear initially to someone can be lasting, you know. Yeah, that, definitely. You know? And um, that feeds into eye contact and face-to-face communication. You know, and absolutely. that would never happen if we didn't. That's exactly look at right. Each other and be with each other. There was a, that connection. There was very apparent, you know. And you were actively listening. You weren't just 
Someone said a joke. You were like yeah. tuning in. Who's this motherfucker yeah, saying this exactly, stuff? Exactly, for know, sure. Why do you keep saying funny stuff? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. It was like really shocking. Like it, yeah. was, a, it was an aberration. <laughs> it was really cool. Um, one last thing that I wanted to say. You sure. Because it's funny how you talk about, you know, like when you, you hear rock stars talk about why they got into, why they want to be a rock star, because they wanted to get women or whatever you talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. But you also have a different relationship with women that I just think people should hear. You've always put women in senior positions in your company. I have. And I, I knew this when I was working with you 20 years ago. Wow. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to acknowledge you for that. Like even now, people like Francie and Sami and those type of people. Do you feel like you your connection with women maybe is, is different in this area than men or something or i do think it's different mm -hmm. i mean you know now we're in this other movement and stuff right but i've always had but you've done this for years yeah right? I, i've always had women in in the high you know in the highest mm -hmm. level of uh creative roles in our company right um i think they have drive you know they like men both have drive and have talent mm -hmm. but men it's just the opposite of the expression. Men are crazier. <laughs> they, the littlest diss makes a man illogical. That's hilarious. They, I, I found that to be true. The uh -huh. littlest slight, some guy feels like their ego is gigantically bruised, and they be then they start making all these dumb decisions. Mm -hmm. And I saw it happen. I felt it for a long time, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had Karen Kahila who worked for yeah, me. Yeah, Karen was awesome. She started. Karen was became mm -hmm. chair, you know, like co-chairman of our company, sure. and she um, worked for me. I think actually she'll t like twenty eight years or mm -hmm. something. She started as an intern, UCLA intern. Anyway, I was making a movie, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, mm -hmm. or we were, and we picked a, the studio picked a date, staked out a date, and then another studio, or Sony, staked out. St stuck out a date a month later on our date. And the studio chairman, our studio chairman, started screaming and went crazy. Like, that fucking guy, that fuck them, will fucking kill. Like, he went nuts. Right. And I said, but why don't we just pick another date? Right. Well, we were there first. We, and I go, but, but maybe another date could be better. Why do we have to, like, mm -hmm. just fight with the guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I just saw that, like, this very smart guy, I don't want to say his name, but a very, sure. very, very intelligent man became completely unglued and illogical and made him, and he made bad decisions. And I started to think about it. I thought, men do that, where women don't do that. Women, they wait, they chill out. They're <laughs> smarter than dudes that way. So I, I just found it to be a, um, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. a better system. Well, Face to Face, you guys, The Art of Human Connection. It's a really fascinating book by Brian. I mean, he talks to some of the most amazing people. Of course, you know the book Curious Mind, too, your conversation Dang. there. But just the act of talking to people and um, listening and that type of thing. I mean, no matter what you do in life, I think is a big lesson. And um, thanks so much for coming by, Black and Air, Brian. Um, Good luck with the book and everything. Thanks, Larry. Great seeing you. I was super excited about seeing you. And let's do something together again. Yeah, yeah let's it do it. <laughs> I'm dying to. <laughs> I chase you, actually. No, 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 no. It's, the uh, it's always the opposite. Uh, Thanks, Brian. All right. You're welcome.